Section 7 of The Chorus Girl and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. The Chorus Girl and Other Stories by Anton Chekhov. Translated by Constance Garnett. My Life. The Story of a Provincial. Part 5. My sister, too, was leading a life of her own which she carefully hid from me. She was often whispering with Masha. When I went up to her, she seemed to shrink into herself, and there was a guilty, imploring look in her eyes. Evidently there was something going on in her heart, of which she was afraid or ashamed. So as to avoid meeting me in the garden, or being left alone with me, she always kept close to Masha, and I rarely had an opportunity of talking to her except at dinner. One evening I was walking quietly through the garden on my way back from the building. It was beginning to get dark. Without noticing me or hearing my step, my sister was walking near a spreading old apple tree, absolutely noiselessly, as though she were a phantom. She was dressed in black and was walking rapidly backwards and forwards on the same track, looking at the ground. An apple fell from the tree. She started at the sound, stood still, and pressed her hands to her temples. At that moment I went up to her. In a rush of tender affection which suddenly flooded my heart, with tears in my eyes suddenly remembering my mother and our childhood, I put my arm round her shoulders and kissed her. "'What is the matter?' I asked her. "'You are unhappy. I have seen it for a long time. Tell me what's wrong.' "'I am frightened,' she said, trembling. "'What is it?' I insisted. "'For God's sake, be open.' "'I will. I will be open. I will tell you the whole truth. To hide it from you is so hard, so agonizing.' Misail, I love, she went on in a whisper, I love him, I love him, I'm happy, but why am I so frightened? There was the sound of footsteps. Between the trees appeared Dr. Blagovo in his silk shirt with his high-top boots. Evidently they had arranged to meet near the apple tree. Seeing him, she rushed impulsively towards him with a cry of pain as though he were being taken from her. Vladimir, Vladimir! She clung to him and looked greedily into his face, and only then I noticed how pale and thin she had become of late. It was particularly noticeable from her lace collar, which I had known for so long and which now hung more loosely than ever before about her thin, long neck. The doctor was disconcerted, but at once recovered himself and stroking her hair said there there why so nervous you see i'm here we were silent looking with embarrassment at each other then we walked on the three of us together and i heard the doctor say to me civilized life has not yet begun among us old men console themselves by making out that if there is nothing now there was something in the forties or the sixties. That's the old. You and I are young. Our brains have not yet been touched by marasmus senilis. We cannot comfort ourselves with such illusions. 
the beginning of russia was in 862 but the beginning of civilized russia has not come yet but i did not grasp the meaning of these reflections it was somehow strange i could not believe it that my sister was in love that she was walking and holding the arm of a stranger and looking tenderly at him my sister this nervous frightened crushed fettered creature loved a man who was married and had children i felt sorry for something but what exactly i don't know the presence of the doctor was for some reason distasteful to me now and i could not imagine what would come of this love of theirs masha and i drove to kurilovka to the dedication of the school autumn 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 said masha softly looking away summer is over there are no birds and nothing is green but the willows yes summer was over there were fine warm days but it was fresh in the morning and the shepherds went out in their sheepskins already and in our garden the dew did not dry off the asters all day long there were plaintive sounds all the time and one could not make out whether they came from the shutters creaking on their rusty hinges or from the flying cranes and one's heart felt light and one was eager for life the summer is over said masha now you and i can balance our accounts we have done a lot of work a lot of thinking we are the better for it all honor and glory to us we have succeeded in self-improvement but have our successes had any perceptible influence on the life around us have they brought any benefit to anyone whatever no ignorance physical uncleanliness drunkenness and appallingly high infant mortality everything remains as it was and no one is the better for your having ploughed and sown and my having wasted money and read books obviously we have been working only for ourselves and have had advanced ideas only for ourselves such reasoning perplexed me and i did not know what to think we have been sincere from beginning to end said i and if anyone is sincere he is right who disputes it we were right but we haven't succeeded in properly accomplishing what we were right in to begin with our external methods themselves aren't they mistaken you want to be of use to men but by the very fact of your buying an estate from the very start you cut yourself off from any possibility of doing anything useful for them then if you work dress eat like a peasant you sanctify as it were by your authority their heavy clumsy dress their horrible huts their stupid beards on the other hand if we suppose that you work for long long years your whole life that in the end some practical results are obtained yet what are they your results what can they do against such elemental forces as wholesale ignorance hunger cold degeneration a drop in the ocean other methods of struggle are needed strong bold rapid if one really wants to be of use one must get 
out of the narrow circle of ordinary social work and try to act direct upon the mass. What is wanted, first of all, is a loud, energetic propaganda. Why is it that art, music for instance, is so living, so popular, and in reality so powerful? Because the musician or the singer affects thousands at once. Precious, precious art, she went on, looking dreamily at the sky. Art gives us wings and carries us far, far away. Anyone who is sick of filth, of petty mercenary interests, anyone who is revolted, wounded and indignant, can find peace and satisfaction only in the beautiful. When we drove into Kurilovka, the weather was bright and joyous. Somewhere they were threshing, there was a smell of rice straw. A mountain ash was bright red behind the hurdle fences, and all the trees, wherever one looked, were ruddy or golden. They were ringing the bells, they were carrying the icons to the school, and we could hear them sing, Holy Mother, our Defender and how limpid the air was, and how high the doves were flying. The service was being held in the classroom. Then the peasants of Kurilovka brought Masha the icon, and the peasants of Dubechnya offered her a big loaf and a gilt-salt cellar. And Masha broke into sobs. If anything has been said that shouldn't have been, or anything done not to your liking, forgive us said an old man, and he bowed down to her and to me. As we drove home, Masha kept looking round at the school, the green roof, which I had painted, and which was glistening in the sun, remained in sight for a long while, and I felt that the look Masha turned upon it now was one of farewell. In the evening she got ready to go to the town, of late she had taken to going often to the town and staying the night there. In her absence I could not work, my hands felt weak and limp, our huge courtyard seemed a dreary, repulsive, empty hole. The garden was full of angry noises, and without her the house, the trees, the horses were no longer ours. I did not go out of the house, but went on sitting at her table beside her bookshelf, with the books on land work, those old favorites no longer wanted, and looking at me now so shamefacedly. For whole hours together, while it struck seven, eight, nine, while the autumn night, black as soot, came on outside, I kept examining her old glove or the pen with which she always wrote, or her little scissors. I did nothing and realized clearly that all I had done before, ploughing, mowing, chopping, had only been because she wished it. And if she had sent me to clean a deep well, where I had to stand up to my waist in deep water, I should have crawled into the well without considering whether it was necessary or not, and now, when she was not near Dubechnya, with its ruins, its untidiness, its banging shutters, with its thieves by day and by night, seemed to me a chaos in which any work would be useless. 
besides what had i to work for here why anxiety and thought about the future if i felt that the earth was giving way under my feet that i had played my part in dubetchnya and that the fate of the books on farming was awaiting me too ah oh, what misery it was at night in hours of solitude when i was listening every minute in alarm as though i were expecting someone to shout that it was time for me to go away i did not grieve for dubetchnya i grieved for my love which too was threatened with its autumn what an immense happiness it is to love and be loved and how awful to feel that one is slipping down from that high pinnacle masha returned from the town towards the evening of the next day she was displeased with something but she concealed it and only said why was it all the window frames had been put in for the winter it was enough to suffocate one i took out two frames we were not hungry but we sat down to supper go and wash your hands said my wife you smell of putty she had brought some new illustrated papers from the town and we looked at them together after supper there were supplements with fashion plates and patterns masha looked through them casually and was putting them aside to examine them properly later on but one dress with a flat skirt as full as a bell and large sleeves interested her and she looked at it for a minute gravely and attentively that's not bad she said yes that dress would suit you beautifully i said beautifully and looking with emotion at the dress admiring that patch of gray simply because she liked it i went on tenderly a charming exquisite dress splendid glorious masha my precious masha and tears dropped on the fashion plate splendid masha i muttered sweet precious masha she went to bed while i sat another hour looking at the illustrations it's a pity you took out the window frames she said from the bedroom i'm afraid i may be cold oh dear what a draught there is i read something out of the column of odds and ends a receipt for making cheap ink and an account of the biggest diamond in the world i came again upon the fashion plate of the dress she liked and i imagined her at a ball with a fan bare shoulders brilliant splendid with a full understanding of painting music literature and how small and how brief my part seemed our meeting our marriage had been only one of the episodes of which there would be many more in the life of this vital richly gifted woman all the best in the world as i have said already was at her service and she received it absolutely for nothing and even ideas and the intellectual movement in vogue served simply for her recreation giving variety to her life and i was only the sledge-driver who drove her from one entertainment to another now she did not need me she would take flight and i should be alone and as though in response to my thought there came a despairing scream from the garden help it was a shrill womanish voice 
and as though to mimic it the wind whistled in the chimney on the same shrill note half a minute passed and again through the noise of the wind but coming it seemed from the other end of the yard help misail do you hear my wife asked me softly do you hear she came out from the bedroom in her nightgown with her hair down and listened looking at the dark window someone is being murdered she said that is the last straw i took my gun and went out it was very dark outside the wind was high and it was difficult to stand i went to the gate and listened the trees roared the wind whistled and probably at the feeble-minded peasants a dog howled lazily outside the gates the darkness was absolute not a light on the railway line and near the lodge which a year before had been the office suddenly sounded a smothered scream help who's there i called there were two people struggling one was thrusting the other out while the other was resisting and both were breathing heavily leave go said one and i recognized ivan chiprakov it was he who was shrieking in a shrill womanish voice let go you damn brute or i bite your hand off the other i recognized as moisei i separated them and as i did so i could not resist hitting moisei two blows in the face he fell down then got up again and i hit him once more he tried to kill me he muttered he was trying to get at his mamma's chest i want to lock him up in the lodge for security chiprakov was drunk and did not recognize me he kept drawing deep breaths as though he were just going to shout help again i left them and went back to the house my wife was lying on her bed she was dressed i told her what had happened in the yard and did not conceal the fact that i had hit moisei it's terrible to live in the country she said and what a long night it is oh dear if only it were over Help! we heard again a little later i'll go and stop them i said no let them bite each other's throats she said with an expression of disgust she was looking up at the ceiling listening while i sat beside her not daring to speak to her feeling as though i were to blame for their shouting help in the yard and for the nights seeming so long we were silent and i waited impatiently for a gleam of light at the window and masha looked all the time as though she had awakened from a trance and now was marvelling how she so clever and well-educated so elegant had come into this pitiful provincial empty hole among a crew of petty insignificant people and how she could have so far forgotten herself as ever to be attracted by one of these people and for more than six months to have been his wife it seemed to me that at that moment it did not matter to her whether it was i or moisei or chiprakov everything for her was merged in that savage drunken help i and our marriage and our work together and the mud and slush of autumn 
and when she sighed or moved into a more comfortable position, I read in her face, Oh, that morning would come quickly. In the morning she went away. I spent another three days at Dubechny expecting her. Then I packed all our things in one room, locked it, and walked to the town. It was already evening when I rang at the engineer's, and the street lamps were burning in Great Dvoryansky Street. Pavel told me there was no one at home. Viktor Ivanovich had gone to Petersburg, and Maria Viktorovna was probably at the rehearsal at the Azhogins. I remember with what emotion I went on to the Azhogins, how my heart throbbed and fluttered as I mounted the stairs and stood waiting a long while on the landing at the top, not daring to enter the Temple of the Muses. In the big room there were lighted candles everywhere, on a little table, on the piano, and on the stage everywhere in threes, and the first performance was fixed for the 13th, and now the first rehearsal was on a Monday, an unlucky day. All part of the war against superstition. All the devotees of the scenic art were gathered together. The eldest, the middle, and the youngest sisters were walking about the stage, reading their parts in exercise books. Apart from all the rest, stood Radish, motionless, with the side of his head pressed to the wall, as he gazed with adoration at the stage, waiting for the rehearsal to begin. Everything as it used to be. I was making my way to my hostess. I had to pay my respects to her, but suddenly everyone said, Hush! and waved me to step quietly. There was a silence. The lid of the piano was raised. A lady sat down at it, screwing up her short-sighted eyes at the music, and my Masha walked up to the piano in a low-necked dress, looking beautiful, but with a special new sort of beauty, not in the least like the Masha who used to come and meet me in the spring at the mill. She sang, Why Do I Love the Radiant Night? It was the first time during our whole acquaintance that I had heard her sing. She had a fine, mellow, powerful voice, and while she sang I felt as though I were eating a ripe, sweet, fragrant melon. She ended, the audience applauded, and she smiled, very much pleased, making play with her eyes, turning over the music, smoothing her skirts like a bird that has at last broken out of its cage and preens its wings in freedom. Her hair was arranged over her ears, and she had an unpleasant, defiant expression in her face, as though she wanted to throw down a challenge to us all, or to shout to us as she did to her horses, Hey there, my beauties! And she must at that moment have been very much like her grandfather, the sledge-driver. You here too, she said, giving me her hand. Did you hear me sing? Well, what did you think of it? And without waiting for my answer, she went on, It's a very good thing you are here. I'm going tonight to Petersburg for a short time. You'll let me go, won't you? At midnight I went with her to the station. She embraced me affectionately, 
probably feeling grateful to me for not asking unnecessary questions, and she promised to write to me, and I held her hands a long time and kissed them, hardly able to restrain my tears and not uttering a word. And when she had gone, I stood watching the retreating lights, caressing her in imagination and softly murmuring, My darling Masha, glorious Masha. I spent the night at Karpovna's, and next morning I was at work with Radish, recovering the furniture of a rich merchant who was marrying his daughter to a doctor. My sister came after dinner on Sunday and had tea with me. I read a great deal now, she said, showing me the books which she had fetched from the public library on her way to me. Thanks to your wife and to Vladimir, they have awakened me to self-realization. They have been my salvation. They have made me feel myself a human being. In old days I used to lie awake at night with worries of all sorts, thinking what a lot of sugar we had used in the week, or hoping the cucumbers would not be too salt. And now, too, I lie awake at night, but I have different thoughts. I'm distressed that half my life has been passed in such a foolish, cowardly way. I despise my past. I am ashamed of it. And I look upon our father now as my enemy. Oh, how grateful I am to your wife and Vladimir. He is such a wonderful person. They have opened my eyes. That's bad that you don't sleep at night, I said. Do you think I am ill? Not at all. Vladimir sounded me and said I was perfectly well. But health is not what matters. It is not so important. Tell me, am I right? She needed moral support. That was obvious. Masha had gone away. Dr. Blagov was in Petersburg, and there was no one left in the town but me to tell her she was right. She looked intently into my face, trying to read my secret thoughts, and if I were absorbed or silent in her presence, she thought it was on her account, and was grieved. I always had to be on my guard, and when she asked me whether she was right, I hastened to assure her that she was right, and that I had a deep respect for her. Do you know they have given me a part at the Azhogins? She went on. I want to act on the stage. I want to live. In fact, I mean to drain the full cup. I have no talent, none. And the part is only ten lines, but still this is immeasurably finer and loftier than pouring out tea five times a day and looking to see if the cook has eaten too much. Above all, let my father see I am capable of protest. After tea she lay down on my bed and lay for a little while with her eyes closed, looking very pale. What weakness, she said, getting up. Vladimir says all city-bred women and girls are anemic from doing nothing. What a clever man Vladimir is. He is right, absolutely right. We must work. Two days later she came to the Azhogins with her manuscript for the rehearsal. She was wearing a black dress with a string of coral round her neck and a brooch that in the distance was like a pastry puff, and in her ears earrings sparkling with brilliance. When I looked at her, I felt uncomfortable. 
I was struck by her lack of taste. That she had very inappropriately put on earrings and brilliants, and that she was strangely dressed, was remarked by other people too. I saw smiles on people's faces, and heard someone say with a laugh, Cleopatra of Egypt. She was trying to assume society manners, to be unconstrained and at her ease, and so seemed artificial and strange. She had lost simplicity and sweetness. I told father just now that I was going to the rehearsal, she began coming up to me, and he shouted that he would not give me his blessing, and actually almost struck me. Only fancy I don't know my part she said, looking at her manuscript. I'm sure to make a mess of it. So be it, the die is cast. She went on in intense excitement. The die is cast. It seemed to her that everyone was looking at her, and that all were amazed at the momentous step she had taken, that everyone was expecting something special of her, and it would have been impossible to convince her that no one was paying attention to people so petty and insignificant as she and I were. She had nothing to do till the third act, and her part, that of a visitor, a provincial crony, consisted only in standing at the door as though listening, and then delivering a brief monologue. In the interval before her appearance, an hour and a half at least, while they were moving about on the stage reading their parts, drinking tea and arguing, she did not leave my side and was all the time muttering her part and nervously crumpling up the manuscript, and imagining that everyone was looking at her and waiting for her appearance. With a trembling head she smoothed back her hair and said to me, I shall certainly make a mess of it. What a load on my heart, if only you knew. I feel frightened, as though I were just going to be led to execution. At last her turn came. Cleopatra Alexeyevna, it's your cue, said the stage manager. She came forward into the middle of the stage with an expression of horror on her face, looking ugly and angular, and for half a minute stood as though in a trance, perfectly motionless, and only her big earrings shook in her ears. The first time you can read it, said someone. It was clear to me that she was trembling, and trembling so much that she could not speak, and could not unfold her manuscript, and that she was incapable of acting her part, and I was already on the point of going to her and saying something, when she suddenly dropped on her knees in the middle of the stage and broke into loud sobs. All was commotion and hubbub. I alone stood still, leaning against the side scene, overwhelmed by what had happened, not understanding and not knowing what to do. I saw them lift her up and lead her away. I saw Anyuta Blagova come up to me. I had not seen her in the room before, and she seemed to have sprung out of the earth. She was wearing her hat and veil, and, as always, had an air of having come only for a moment. I told her not to take a part, she said angrily, jerking out each word abruptly and turning crimson. It's insanity. 
You ought to have prevented her. Madame Ajorgin, in a short jacket with short sleeves with cigarette ash on her breast, looking thin and flat, came rapidly towards me. My dear, this is terrible, she brought out, wringing her hands, and, as her habit was, looking intently into my face. This is terrible. Your sister is in a condition. She is with child. Take her away, I implore you. She was breathless with agitation, while on one side stood her three daughters exactly like her, thin and flat, huddling together in a scared way. They were alarmed, overwhelmed, as though a convict had been caught in their house. What a disgrace! How dreadful! And yet this estimable family had spent its life waging war on superstition. Evidently they imagined that all the superstition and error of humanity was limited to the three candles the thirteenth of the month and to the unluckiness of Monday. I beg you, I beg, repeated Madame Ajorgin, pursing up her lips in the shape of a heart on the syllable you, I beg you to take her home. A little later my sister and I were walking along the street. I covered her with the skirts of my coat. We hastened, choosing back streets where there were no street lamps, avoiding passers-by. It was as though we were running away. She was no longer crying, but looked at me with dry eyes. To Karpovna's, where I took her, it was only twenty minutes' walk, and, strange to say, in that short time we succeeded in thinking of our whole life. We talked over everything, considered our position, reflected. We decided we could not go on living in this town, and that when I had earned a little money we would move to some other place. In some houses everyone was asleep, in others they were playing cards. We hated these houses. We were afraid of them. We talked of the fanaticism, the coarseness of feeling, the insignificance of these respectable families these amateurs of dramatic art whom we had so alarmed and i kept asking in what way these stupid cruel lazy and dishonest people were superior to the drunken and superstitious peasants of kurilovka or in what way they were better than animals who in the same way are thrown into a panic when some incident disturbs the monotony of their life limited by their instincts what would have happened to my sister now if she had been left to live at home? What moral agonies would she have experienced talking with my father, meeting every day with acquaintances? I imagined this to myself, and at once there came into my mind people, all people I knew, who had been slowly done to death by their nearest relations. I remembered the tortured dogs driven mad, the live sparrows plucked naked by boys and flung into the water, and a long, long series of obscure lingering miseries, which I had looked on continually from early childhood in that town, and I could not understand what these sixty thousand people lived for, what they read the gospel for, why they prayed, why they read books and magazines. What good had they gained? from all that had been said and written hitherto, 
if they were still possessed by the same spiritual darkness and hatred of liberty as they were a hundred and three hundred years ago. A master carpenter spends his whole life building houses in the town, and always, to the day of his death, calls a gallery a galdery. So these 60,000 people have been reading and hearing of truth, of justice, of mercy, of freedom for generations, and yet, from morning till night, till the day of their death, they are lying and tormenting each other, and they fear liberty and hate it as a deadly foe. And so my fate is decided, said my sister as we arrived home. After what has happened, I cannot go back there. Heavens, how good that is! My heart feels lighter. She went to bed at once. Tears were glittering on her eyelashes, but her expression was happy. She fell into a sound, sweet sleep, and one could see that her heart was lighter and that she was resting. It was a long, long time since she had slept like that. And so we began our life together. She was always singing and saying that her life was very happy, and the books I brought her from the public library I took back unread, as now she could not read. She wanted to do nothing but dream and talk of the future, mending my linen or helping Karpovna near the stove. She was always singing or talking of her Vladimir, of his cleverness, of his charming manners, of his kindness, of his extraordinary learning, and I assented to all she said, though by now I disliked her doctor. She wanted to work, to lead an independent life on her own account, and she used to say that she would become a schoolteacher or a doctor's assistant as soon as her health would permit her, and would herself do the scrubbing and the washing. Already she was passionately devoted to her child. He was not yet born, but she knew already the color of his eyes, what his hands would be like, and how he would laugh. She was fond of talking about education, and as her Vladimir was the best man in the world, all her discussion of education could be summed up in the question how to make the boy as fascinating as his father. There was no end to her talk, and everything she said made her intensely joyful. Sometimes I was delighted too, though I could not have said why. I suppose her dreaminess infected me. I, too, gave up reading and did nothing but dream. In the evenings, in spite of my fatigue, I walked up and down the room with my hands in my pockets, talking of Masha. What do you think? I would ask my sister. When will she come back? I think she'll come back at Christmas, not later. What has she to do there? As she doesn't write to you, it's evident she will come back very soon. That's true. I assented, though I knew perfectly well that Masha would not return to our town. I missed her fearfully, and could no longer deceive myself, and tried to get other people to deceive me. My sister was expecting her doctor, and I, Masha, and both of us talked incessantly, laughed, and did not notice that we were preventing Karpovna from sleeping. She lay on the stove and kept muttering. 
the samovar hummed this morning it did hum oh it bodes no good my dears it bodes no good no one ever came to see us but the postman who brought my sister letters from the doctor and prokofy who sometimes came in to see us in the evening and after looking at my sister without speaking went away and when he was in the kitchen said every class ought to remember its rules and anyone who is so proud that he won't understand that will find it a veil of tears he was very fond of the phrase a veil of tears one day it was in christmas week when i was walking by the bazaar he called me into the butcher's shop and not shaking hands with me announced that he had to speak to me about something very important his face was red from the frost and vodka near him behind the counter stood nikolka with the expression of a brigand holding a blood-stained knife in his hand i desire to express my word to you prokofy began this incident cannot continue because as you understand yourself that for such a veil people will say nothing good of you or of us mamma through pity cannot say something unpleasant to you that your sister should move into another lodging on account of her condition but i won't have it any more because i can't approve of her behaviour i understood him and i went out of the shop the same day my sister and i moved to radishes we had no money for a cab and we walked on foot i carried a parcel of our belongings on my back my sister had nothing in her hands but she gasped for breath and coughed and kept asking whether we should get there soon end of section seven